we have David Bainbridge from the Vet School, who's going to tell us all about teenagers. Um, he is an expert in this area, despite the Vet School Association, so you know, don't hold that one against him, um, and has in fact written several books about teenagers, old people, and shapely ladies. So um, knows all sorts of things about all sorts of different areas of humans. Um, so do please welcome him now. Hello, lovely to see you, see you here. Um, the last, I was just saying to my daughter who's in the front row, uh, the last time I was in this lecture theatre was uh, when I was 19. Um, so it's quite strange being back here and being on the other side. Obviously that was only a couple of years ago. Um, if I could just have my picture, please. Oh, there we go. Thank you. Um, yes, uh, teenagers uh, and why uh, teenagers. And people often say, why, why are you writing about teenagers? Um, when you're a vet. Well, yes, um, I am a vet. Uh, as I try to make clear, for, this is actually a snippet. This is from uh, St. Catherine's College website where I have my own little page. And you see, I do still try and make out uh, that I'm a vet as well. That's me with uh, simple Simon, um, who is the little kitten we had in a, a couple of years ago. Uh, yes, uh, I am a vet. Um, I did zoology here uh, as my degree for becoming a vet. Um, I then worked in practice for a year. I then uh, worked on deer at London Zoo for my PhD. Um, and then I did a, a postdoc uh, at Oxford. Um, um, and uh, that was on uh, human pregnancy. So I was working in the obs and gynae department at Oxford. And everybody there thought this was hilarious, uh, having a vet working in the obs and gynae department. Don't worry, I didn't deliver any babies. Um, forgot that I told anybody about anyway. Um, and uh, they keep saying to me, oh, well, do, do, do animals do this? Do animals do that? Humans do this, blah, 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 but do animals do that? And I thought all of these things, thinking, God, humans are really weird, uh, aren't they? And that was really um, when I started uh, writing uh, popular science books. Uh, whoops, uh, that was uh, this one uh, here. My first one is called Making Babies, about pregnancy uh, and reproduction in humans. And I realized that whenever I find something about humans, which is extremely strange or preferably unique, uh, then that's a book. That's what I think. As soon as I see it, I think, oh, right, yeah, that's a book. So I wrote a few, and, and, and one of these uh, is the one that I'm going to talk about today, because teenagers, I don't think any other animal has teenagers, basically. And this is something which I think requires explanation. Um, I decided the same thing about middle age. I, I, I resented a bit about old people. Uh, this is the book I wrote. Um, I'm 48. Um, I said there's middle age. I don't consider that old people. Um, and uh, also, as we've heard, shapely ladies uh, as well. But today, sorry if you're interested in shapely ladies, today uh, we're talking uh, about teenagers. Why did I decide to write a book about teenagers? Um, well, first of all, one is uh, the, the sort of societal perception of teenagers uh, is incredibly negative, and I couldn't really believe that we felt that negatively about teenagers. One thing that really crystallized it for me once is I was listening to uh, the uh, news on Look East, um, and it was a story of there'd been some fight, some guys in their 20s had some big fight outside a club in Ipswich, um, and in the summing up at the end of the trial, the judge says, you acted not as human beings, but as unthinking teenagers. <laughs> and I thought, hang on, that's going a bit far, isn't it? Um, so partly I wanted to write something uh, a little bit positive, because I couldn't believe that we just had these things just to sort of drag us down. 
Um, the, uh, I also had sort of like personal interest in this because I wrote this book just about the time that my oldest daughter was about to become a teenager. This is her on her 10th birthday. Uh, this is uh, Ellie, um, whose, younger whose younger sister is uh, in the audience uh, today. She's probably laughing at this because she knows how much Ellie hates me using her photo uh, in this lecture. She's now a student uh, reading English uh, at Liverpool, so she's managed to escape. Um, and uh, I'd always sort of thought, that, well, so teenagers, are, uh, initially I just thought, oh, it was an interesting stage of life because you kind of do lots of the things you do when you're a kid, but you start to do lots of the things you do when you're an adult, and it's a kind of mixed time of life. And this was my very simplistic view I had of it at the time. But as time went on, as I was researching into it, I realized actually there was much more uh, to being a teenager uh, than that, as we will see. And then the other reason I was what really got excited about looking into all of this is so much of what we know about teenagers has really appeared in about the last 15 years. We knew very little about them at all, uh, almost nothing about their biology uh, or, their new, or their sort of how their brain worked. Uh, and they were surprisingly neglected in the world of psychology. Uh, and maybe we'll get a chance to think about why that's rather weird uh, later on. So I thought, well, how am I going to work out what teenagers are for uh, and why we evolved them? So I thought, well, uh, I'm a vet. I'll just make a list of the strange things uh, that I can think of about this species that I'm dealing with, which is humans. And I put them in, they fell into sort of four general groups. Uh, these are the things which I think are strange about humans. Uh, the one at the top, uh, I'm not really going to talk about much today because actually we can walk on two legs pretty well by the time we're 10. That's not something you particularly learn when you're a teenager. I suspect it probably is the original thing that really kicked off the whole human story, but not talking about it today. Now, if you ask a member of the general public what they thought was the most distinctive thing about humans, they'd probably say, well, they're really intelligent, aren't they? And that's uh, the second group, really. Uh, I've made it sound a little bit more sciencey. Increased cognitive abilities. Cognitive just means thinking. If ever a scientist says cognitive, they just mean thinking. That's exactly the same thing. Uh, and I've picked out one in particular, uh, which is language. There's no real evidence that any other species employs anything approaching what we would call uh, a language. That's very special. You look at reproductive things uh, to do with humans. They're various weird things. Um, we're not quite unique, but we're very unusual uh, in that female humans uh, menstruate. That does uh, obviously start off uh, during uh, the teenage years, but it has wider ramifications for human biology. Another thing that's very unusual about humans is human females, uh, most other female mammals, undergo periods of heat in that they get, or estrus, when they're sort of obviously sexually receptive to the male. Whereas this very much does not happen in humans. Um, the period of fertility in women uh, is hidden uh, from males and it's hidden from females as well. We know that because you go back in history and, for example, the ancient Greeks thought that women were fertile uh, when they were menstruating, which we now know is completely wrong. So it just shows that unlike every other species, we have no idea when women uh, are fertile. Um, human society would be very different if, if this were not the case, uh, but it is the case. Also, uh, this is a rather polite way of putting it, unlike most species, uh, humans have sex for what I call non-procreative reasons. Um, anthropologists make long lists of the reasons why people uh, have sex. One of them is, of course, uh, to make babies, but there's a very long list of them. Um, and they do, yes, include things like boredom and fun uh, and things like that. Oh, but maintaining the pair bond is one of the most important ones. 
Uh, and also, I uh, didn't talk about this that much, obviously this is more in the Middle Age, but uh, menopause uh, we thought only occurred uh, in humans. We now know it actually occurs in killer whales uh, as well. Uh, I don't particularly want to do to menopausal killer whale, but as I say, that's not really <laughs> necessarily something for this talk today. Uh, what else? Humans live an unusually long time, 70-ish um, uh, years, and probably have always lived. Uh, if we survive to the age of five, you probably stood a very good chance of living to 70 uh, or 80. Um, and uh, the, even for an animal of our size, that we live an unusually long time. Very few animals live longer than us. Few turtles, few whales, um, not much really. Uh, so we're almost the longest lived animals on the planet, but not quite, obviously. Um, this one, uh, any parents in the audience will look at this one and go, yeah, you're not kidding. Um, <laughs> but this really is very important for today because it does take about 20 years, let's say, uh, for a human to grow up. And some might argue even longer uh, than that. Um, uncommonly for a mammal, paternal provision and of resources and paternal care is very important in humans. It's actually that's very common in birds, but quite uncommon uh, in mammals. Um, and we think that's partly because our offspring is such an investment over such a long time that one parent simply cannot uh, manage it. Um, and also, uh, even once people have stopped um, breeding and producing babies, they don't just die like a salmon or something like that. They, they live for decades and decades after they've stopped having babies. Uh, and this is another very unusual uh, feature as well. So I thought, well, which of these am I going to go for first uh, when thinking about humans? I thought, well, let's go for the obvious one, which is the, the fact that we are very clever. Uh, and people have wondered for quite a long time about um, why and how humans became so clever and what it is that allows us to be so uh, intelligent. And to illustrate this, I've developed a very advanced uh, audio-visual guide here. Um, now, uh, when humans first appeared, uh, they had a brain about the size of a good-sized orange, about that big, about 400 uh, mils. Um, that was when we first split off from the chimps, um, who are uh, probably, almost certainly, uh, our closest relatives. And for centuries, anatomists wanted to know, what is it that's special about the human brain that makes us human? What is like, say, you know, the USB dongle that got plugged in that turns a monkey brain uh, into a human brain? And they looked and they looked and several times they thought they'd found it, um, but they hadn't. They found they'd always find some weird rhesus macaque or something that had exactly the same thing. And nobody could find what it was. And gradually we came to the realization that it's probably just that our brain is very big. There's nothing, no one bit of it which is different. It's just very big. We have all this extra reserved capacity. And we can see this huge swelling of the human brain over the course of evolution because we can look at the inside uh, of fossil skulls. Um, and uh, it really is one of these things where we can see size is important because, first of all, we had a brain about this size. And then about three million years ago, uh, the brain went through a sudden expansion and went up uh, to two good-sized orange size, about 800 to 900 uh, mils. Uh, and then about a quarter of a million years ago, and remember that number, a quarter of a million years ago, uh, the brain increased again to its current size. So for the last quarter of a million years, the human brain has been pretty much the same size. So we assume humans have been roughly as intelligent uh, uh, as modern-day people for about the last quarter of a million years. Now, this is very weird. This has not happened in any other animal. Normally, if you know how big a mammal is, you can predict how big its brain will be. Because um, there's a very neat correlation between the size of the brain 
and the size of the body. Um, and humans' brains are basically about five times too big for a mammal uh, of our size. When I was doing my PhD, I was working on red deer. Female red deer weighs about as much as a person, and their brains are about a fifth of the size of our brain. So it's something no other species has done. There's been a great big uh, amplification uh, of uh, the brain. And it's led to this huge sort of oversupply of brain tissue that allowed us to do all the things we needed to do. But remember that quarter of a million years figure for when uh, that last orange uh, appeared. Um, and so, well, that's all very well. So brain, very important. Um, but what about, um, how do we, we're talking about teenagers. The weird thing about humans is we have teenagers. Most other animals are mature long before they're 10 years old, even things like chimps and elephants and whales. They're all kind of done by the time they're 10. Humans, very obviously not. Uh, they need another 10-ish or so years to develop. When did this actually happen? When did we first have teenagers? And for a long time, we thought we were never going to be able to tell this. But then we realized, uh, somebody discovered there's actually a way that you can take a bit of a fossil human and work out how long it took them to grow up. And to do that, the particular tissue that you use in the fossil uh, to study this is the anthropologist's favorite, uh, which is the teeth. Now, the thing about teeth is we know quite a lot about teeth um, because we know how they're laid down. Um, and the thing that's one of the things that's very distinctive about humans is that modern humans have very thick enamel. Presumably, it's because we live so long uh, and thus uh, we need lots of enamel so it doesn't all wear away by the time we're 23. Um, but we also know that uh, the, sort of the, the humans who were around before a quarter of a million years ago, they had very thick enamel uh, as well. Um, but what we can do is you can actually look at the enamel, the shiny bit on the outside of the teeth, uh, and you basically cut sections through teeth, look at it through polarized light, and you can see growth rings in it, like the growth rings of a tree. Um, unlike a tree's growth rings, these growth rings of enamel are laid down roughly every four days. But what it means is you can basically use them to see how long it took to build the tooth. Um, and if you look at all the teeth in the mouth and match them all and compare them all, you can work out how long it took that individual to get to maturity. And if you look at humans before a quarter of a million years ago, you find that they have very thick enamel because the enamel was laid down very rapidly. So in every four days, they'd lay down a lot of enamel. Whereas after a quarter of a million years ago, the enamel is very thick in the end because it's laid down over a very long period instead. So we could work out and find out that fairly suddenly, we changed from a species where it took about eight years to grow up to a species where it took 15, 16, something like that. So suddenly, we have fossil teenagers sort of loping across the savannah, and we know when it happened. Quarter of a million years ago, quarter of a million years ago is when the brain enlarged, and I don't think that can be a coincidence. I don't think it's a coincidence that the brain suddenly made its last great leap forward almost exactly the same time that we evolved teenagers. I can't see that those two are not linked. But of course, that's still circumstantial evidence. So we'll have to see. Well, what evidence do we have? Well, do we have any sort of evidence of the, the addition of this new great second age? Uh, th this really the second decade of human life, which other animals don't have uh, an equivalent. Um, and we do. And one way you can look at this is you can look at, uh, th this is a growth curve. Um, uh, this is um, how many millimeters a human being grows uh, each month uh, in the first 20 years of life. So by 20, obviously, everybody stopped growing, so it's all down to zero. 
Uh, and if you look at a cur curve like this in every other animal, it's very boring. It just goes down to nothing with puberty somewhere down here. So a very boring shaped curve. Whereas as soon as you look at the human growth curve, you can see it's very complex um, and it even differs uh, between the sexes uh, as well. So like all animals, humans start growing very quickly uh, when they're little and gradually that slows down and slows down and slows down. But instead of it just going down to zero at about eight or ten years, uh, there's a little bump there at about eight, which we don't really have time to talk about today. It is interesting, but it's not really uh, to do with teenagers. And then you see something which is really distinctive to our species, which is called the adolescent growth surge. This thing that both sexes have this sudden spike uh, in the rate uh, of their growth uh, during the teenage years. So you don't see any of this. This is completely new. Just our species uh, has this. Of course, it is interesting girls do it earlier. Uh, girls grow earlier. I well remember about this age at school when all the girls are up there and beautiful and willowy and adult looking and we're all little short, spotty little horrors. Um, but luckily, luckily, nature comes back and saves us. Uh, and boys do grow, and they grow faster, but they grow later, and they grow longer as well. They grow up to 21 uh, instead of 18. Uh, and that's the reason why boys end up, on gen in general, being taller. Those of you with a mathematical bent will actually realize the area under these lines is the eventual height we get to, but don't worry about that. Um, so this is just bizarre. You just don't see this in any other animal. This is real evidence that there's this new phase of human life that's just being glued on, and it's like, oh, right, okay, fair enough, that's what we're doing now, is it? And if you look in the brain, which we've already said is, is, is uh, a key to human success, uh, you, can, you see even stranger things uh, going on there. This is an MRI scan, and this is one of the reasons we didn't really know anything about the teenage brain uh, until about 15 or so, so years ago, because you could only look at teenage brains uh, by killing them, which wasn't really very popular. Uh, but of course now with brain scans, you can take a teenager, you can brain scan them, you can have them back in three months, you can brain scan them again, you just keep doing that forever and ever, and you can watch their brain developing. This isn't actually the teenage brain, this is actually my brain. Um, one of my uh, old school friends is now a neuropsychiatrist, uh, and he was doing a study uh, of a disorder, and he says, oh, would you like to be one of my control patients? Uh, uh, well, that's what he said, anyway. Um, and um, uh, I said, only if I can have the pictures afterwards. Uh, so this is actually me. So look at that, eh? Look at that. Look at that. All that stuff. That stuff. That's fat, that white stuff. But that, 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 this, <laughs> this stuff is good. Now, the human brain grows in a very weird way. Other animals, the brain grows and grows and grows while they're in utero, while they're fetuses. It grows and grows and grows. And then after birth, brain growth tails off quite rapidly. It does continue to grow, but the rate of growth declines. The human brain is not like that. It's, when a baby is born, its brain doesn't realize. It just keeps on going. It grows like it's, like it's a fetal brain for about another two, two and a half years. The, the, the growth rate just keeps going up. Um, and uh, you get all these really weird um, uh, sort of statistics because of that. Like I think the human brain creates, an, a, a baby's brain creates a million new nerve cells every 20 seconds. And a resting human baby, I think when a baby, a human baby is asleep, 85% of all the energy it's using is being used in its brain. So we're basi basically brains on a stick. Uh, and this carries on, and this is where you get kids who are about sort of seven or eight, and they're just this little person with this huge head on top. And that is why, because the brain grows so uh, incredibly quickly. 
And then the brain grows and grows and grows, and it carries on growing until about 9, 10, 11, 12, somewhere around, depends on the sex, doesn't really matter. Uh, and, and then it stopped, the, the actual gross size of the brain stops, and actually some of the gray matter on the outside, this curly stuff here, that actually starts to get thinner. And the brain as a whole starts to shrink around the age of 10. And over the second decade of life, the brain actually shrinks. Um, and actually, it probably continues to shrink throughout the rest of life, but at a lower rate. So the brain is shrinking uh, and shrinking uh, and shrinking. Now, so in the teenage years, the brain's getting smaller. You may think, oh, yeah, that's no surprise. But actually, if you think about it, that's quite weird. Here is a child painting uh, a picture. And if you're looking after this child, you go, that's very nice, dear. Um, so I see you've got some, uh, got some uh, a little snowman here. Um, those little eyes, your little mouth, your little nose, and some snow on the ground and some clouds in the sky. And you'd say, well, and oh, there's a little tree over here uh, as well. You'd say, that's really good. That's, uh, but actually, it's shit, isn't it? If you found a 20-year-old painting this, you'd be quite worried. <laughs> and that's the point. It's the over the second decade of life, the brain gets smaller, and yet you're obviously getting better at everything, um, even though the brain's getting smaller. So just the size of the brain during one lifetime is not very important because it's just, you know, teenagers are getting better at things. So what is going on? Well, if you actually, the thing we can do now, of course, with brain scans is do much more specific things and you can see what's going on. And what you find out is that during the teenage years, there's a tremendous reconfiguring of the brain. Um, and there's three things that particularly happen. One is that until you're about 10 or 12 or whatever it is, your nerve, nerve cells are making more and more connections, synapses, connecting, 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 trillions, literally trillions of connections in a single brain. And then you get to that age, and suddenly lots of these connections start getting chopped away. And that's one of the reasons the gray matter on the outside of the brain uh, gets small. It's called synaptic pruning. Oops, I like, I've screwed this up, the idea of that. And it's not just random, and it's not even just cutting away the bits that you don't use. It's a very organized process. It, like, waves of pruning sweep across your brain in different directions at different ages when you're an early teenager. Uh, the second thing that happens is uh, that uh, process called myelination. Myelin is the stuff that goes on nerve cells uh, and you think of it as insulating the nerve cells, but actually just makes them send impulses a lot faster. And so we think many of the pathways in the brain that were there already in children, but in teenagers, they're acquiring this insulation, they can conduct much faster, and they actually start working. So lots of pathways, pre-existing pathways, receive their insulation and switch on. The third thing, which has proven much harder to show, uh, is that we think that there's release of a factor called dopamine, from various structures deep in the brain, kind of switching on bits of the cortex that weren't as active uh, before. So there's these sort of three processes going on together. Synaptic pruning, myelination, and then this sort of dopamine-based uh, activation uh, of all the different bits of the brain. So that's what's going on in teenagers. Uh, the brain is being completely reconfigured, this huge brain that we've now got. It doesn't just grow for 10 years. It has to be completely reconfigured, redesigned to make it a fully human brain, a uh, fully functioning uh, brain. Um, and, of course, this ties in. This is why we evolved teenagers at the same time uh, that our brain made its last great leap forward. That's what evolved teenagers 
force, coordinate this maturation of the brain to allow it to do all the amazing uh, things uh, it can do. So, what does this mean uh, for uh, our average uh, teenager? <laughs> Those of you above a certain age will immediately recognize who this is. Those of you below a certain age will have no idea who this is. So I better explain it. Uh, this uh, is a character called Kevin the Teenager, who is played by a comedian called uh, an impressionist uh, called Harry Enfield. And uh, this was sort of mid-90s, I think, uh, probably Kevin uh, the Teenager. And he's famous uh, of people of a certain age uh, because he was such an accurate description uh, of um, what, how a teenager behaves. Apparently, he was actually based on Lily Allen uh, because uh, at the time, um, Harry Enfield was actually, his partner was Lily Allen's mother uh, when Lily Allen was a little girl and she was just becoming a teenager and she was so horrible that he based the character uh, on, on her. So you can kind of imagine what Lily Allen would have been like uh, as a teenager. So you have all this reconfiguration, reconstruction going on in the brain during these 10 years. What does it actually uh, make teenagers do? Well, it does various things. It does some things that we think of as being negative. It does some things uh, that we think of as being positive. And then it does other things that we just don't really know what to think about them, uh, really. Um, so, for example, I mean, a classic example people always think of as being very negative is sleep. Sleep patterns change in many teenagers. Not all teenagers, but many teenagers. Um, and it's very noticeable with uh, my oldest daughter um, is that uh, when she was a child, she would just get up like normal times, normal days. Um, and then suddenly, within a period of about a week, suddenly she found it incredibly difficult to get up in the morning. And she's kind of been like that ever since. And she's not basically a lazy person. Um, and it happened so quickly that it just really seemed like, oh, so it almost it was like a switch had been thrown. And people are looking into why this happens. Uh, one is that, I mean, obviously, you have a little clock inside your head. It's called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, and it's active every 24, roughly every 24 hours. All, we all get it a bit wrong, but roughly every 24 hours, um, uh, you know that the day is starting, you know what time of day it is. It's one of the, the irritating thing where if you do the same job for ages and ages, you, you keep waking up 10 seconds before your alarm goes off. And for some reason, that makes you really angry. Anyway, that's why. So we all have this clock. So this is, uh, but we don't know yet exactly what's going on with this clock. It could be that the clock just, uh, it, when you're a teenager, the clock suddenly thinks that the day is 26 hours long. It could just be that the whole clock is just shifted two hours. Um, it could also be that teenagers, teenagers do seem to be very bad at assessing fatigue. You don't just go to bed because it's the appropriate time of day. You go to bed because it, you're tired. And there is some evidence that teenagers are very bad at assessing their own levels uh, of fatigue. And we don't know uh, why any of this uh, would uh, be. I mean, the thing to do really is to do an experiment is to take lots of teenagers and make them live in a cave with no natural light and see what their natural uh, endogenous rhythms are. Nobody's actually yet got permission to do this experiment. Um, but uh, you may know there are some schools, I mean, they started in the Netherlands and then in the States, and now in this country, there are some schools, secondary schools, that now start an hour later and end an hour later in the day. And they shift, and they claim, well, the schools in the other countries that have done this have claimed that they've got better academic results uh, as, as, as a result of this, because they've kind of entrained the teaching day uh, to the kids uh, themselves. Um, there are various other things uh, that teenagers do. Uh, there's, um, they start to take risks. 
Um, risk is quite a big thing for teenagers. Uh, however, I would argue that risk is not a negative thing. You always, you do have to take risks uh, in your life. Probably not when you're a child, but when you're a teenager, you start having to learn uh, what risks are like and uh, what can happen when risks go horribly wrong and what happens when risks uh, go well as well. Of course, if, no, if none of us never ever took a risk, then uh, there soon wouldn't be any more people uh, in the world, would there? Because you kind of have to take a risk to, to uh, hook up with somebody. Um, so risk uh, is uh, very important, and there are people doing a lot of work in sort of brain pathways that are involved in, in risk in teenagers. I think the main problem with risk in teenagers is just because teenagers, like adults, are incredibly bad at assessing the risks that we encounter in the modern world. If you went back 10,000 years ago, I think we'd all be very good at assessing the risk of what are the chances of falling out of that tree, what are the chances of being swept away by that river, what are the chances of that lion over there eating you. I think we're probably all actually quite good at assessing those risks. But when you're thinking about things like taking drugs of unknown potency or driving on a wet road at night uh, or um, uh, being sexually active at a time when you're not absolutely sure how prevalent particular sexually transmitted diseases are, uh, uh, teenagers are just as bad as, as adults at assessing those risks. So I don't think it's the risk-taking itself that is the problem. I think it is the nature of the risk, and you just uh, we're not instinctively uh, able uh, to uh, deal with them. Um, another thing that happens during the teenage years, and Kevin was very big on this, uh, was autonomy. One thing that happens uh, very clearly in lots of teenagers is they sort of psychologically distance themselves away from their parents. Now, of course, this is an entirely natural uh, process. Uh, it's not a particularly pleasant process, especially for the parents, but that is what teenagers do. And there are studies that show that the more sort of abrupt and sort of almost, you know, acrimonious this separation is, the happier those teenagers will be by the time they're 25 years old. <laughs> so this is one of these situations where I'm afraid evolution uh, did not design teenagers to keep parents happy. Parents are relatively unimportant in all of this, I'm afraid, because they're not the peak uh, of human existence like teenagers are. Um, so, uh, yes, autonomy, uh, very important. Of course, but the thing that, that happens with this is that friends become incredibly important uh, to teenagers, almost to the point of obsession um, in uh, some cases. Uh, and so they move their social focus from parents to friends. And, of course, the, one of the things teenagers do is they develop this incredible sort of social linguistic complexity. Uh, they develop different ways of speaking to speak to different people. So they'll sort of grunt inarticulately at their parents. They'll talk perfectly normally uh, to school teachers. Uh, and yet, when they talk to their friends, they'll have a sort of completely impenetrable, incomprehensible <coughs> series of codes and in-jokes and taking the piss out of each other uh, and things like that, to, which creates a social group that sort of it defines a group that separates out other people um, and keeps them uh, keeps them coherent. So you learn the social value of language, and of course uh, the thing that makes this very clear is that children cannot do this. The thing we love about children is that they talk to everybody the same way, uh, whether they're a friend at school or their teacher or their parent or the queen. They talk to them all exactly the same way, and we think that's hilarious, but it's very much not course, uh, what teenagers do. So language, very, very important. But friendship is important, and there's lots of discussion about why friendship is so important uh, to teenagers, uh, because uh, friendship is actually very zoologically unusual. 
most animals do not have friends. Uh, they have kin, uh, they have mates, they have allies to achieve certain goals, but they don't just have these other individuals that they just kind of wander around with for no apparent reason. <laughs> Whereas humans obviously do, and, and, and teenage years are when this becomes really, really important, and people have debated uh, about what friends um, are for. Um, one, the first theory of why people have friends is that you actually gain something materially out of your friends. Now, this is rubbish because you very obviously don't really get anything from your friends. Or if you do, you normally give them the same amount back. So you don't really uh, gain uh, anything. And indeed, if you're in a social group of friends and somebody tries to ingratiate their way in by offering you all things, th that immediately arouses suspicion, doesn't it? Uh, but of course, teenagers are very clever, and what they do is they let this person into their social circle, they take what they're giving, and then they chuck them out again. Um, <laughs> so I don't think friendship is about uh, material gain. Um, another one is uh, sort of uh, social learning. The idea is that you're learning to communicate like adults, blah, 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 blah. Now, I don't think that's true either, because if you want to learn how to communicate like adults, you go and talk to adults. You don't go and talk to other teenagers. Um, because that just wouldn't make sense. Uh, and there's uh, another idea, which is what teenagers are actually doing. I mean, it's not just learning to speak. You're kind of work to work out who you are. Lots of teenage life is thinking about who you are and what you're going to be and where you fit into the world and where you fit into society. And the way it seems uh, to do that is to actually communicate with other teenagers. You're doing the same thing. You bounce ideas off each other, some of which you will accept, some of which you will reject. But you just talk about things like this. And this, I think, is why... Um, friendship is so important and so complex uh, for teenagers. Now, of course, friendship differs between the two sexes in a fascinating way. Um, female teenage friendship is, is quite different from male teenage friendship. Uh, and actually, this does, I think, a bit start uh, in childhood. You know, if, if, if female friends break up uh, during their teenage years, it's often seen as a sort of betrayal. They've often, often told each other lots of embarrassing details about each other that they're worried the other one is going to let get out. Be because they tend to, there's lots of studies that show that girls tend to talk to other girls about, you know, themselves and their feelings and what's going on with, like, with them and with their bodies uh, and things like that. Um, whereas boys don't tend to. Boys tend to abstract, they tend to talk about stuff. They talk about stuff they're interested in, whether that's, I don't know, sport or, I don't know, cars or music or the sort of superficial aspects of female attractiveness. They tend to be talking about abstract. So in a way, a male friendship, you could argue, is a more sort of subtle, complex thing. Uh, but it does mean that male, male friendships can sort of drift apart and come back together, and it's, it's all a bit more sort of freeform. And I do remember, actually, my son. Yes, I've got three of the little buggers. Uh, my son, uh, one day he'd come home from school, and he said, oh, I had a big fight with Peter today, blah, blah, blah. And then he'd come back the next day, and he'd say, can Peter come over to play? And you think, what? Um, so the two are different. The one thing I was very disappointed by, there's almost no studies of male-female platonic friendship, um, which I think would be a very interesting thing uh, to study, but there's been almost no work done on that um, at all. So what else happens in the brain? Well, people often talk about teenagers and drugs, and I wrote quite extensively um, about drugs. It does appear that uh, drugs, for example, trip affect the teenage brain in a different way than they affect uh, the adult brain. This, of course, isn't really that surprising because, I've already said, they're very different. Um, they're a completely different stage. They're, they're, they're a different organ. So it's not really surprising that they would affect um, individuals differently depending on their age. 
One example, for example, is a, a, a ketamine, which is a drug uh, that I use, but only in cats and horses. Uh, but it is also a drug of abuse uh, as well. Uh, special K, I think it's sometimes called. Um, and this has very different effects. Uh, so, for example, um, in teenagers, it causes particularly dramatic hallucinations. Uh, more dramatic than in adults, whereas in children, I don't know how they found this out, it doesn't cause hallucinations at all. Um, uh, another one would be nicotine. It does uh, nicotine is just about the most addictive drug there is. It probably is more addictive than cocaine, I think. Um, and nicotine is, uh, seems to be particularly addictive in teenagers. Uh, it seems much harder for teenagers to kick uh, the habit of nicotine, uh, even harder uh, than adults. Uh, alcohol seems to affect them differently, maybe not because of the really direct effects of alcohol, but again, because of this assessment of fatigue at my age, I've noticed if I have a couple of drinks, well, I haven't noticed because I'm usually asleep uh, after a couple of drinks, uh, but when I was a teenager, I could drink much more just because I didn't get tired and I didn't fall asleep. And so I think one of the reasons teenagers can sometimes have problems with alcohol is they just physically are not stopped by fatigue or, or, or inability to, to lift the glass again. Um, so lots of this uh, is quite different. The other thing, of course, that's going on uh, in the teenage brain at this time, and this is one of these things which I always think, it's very weird that psychologists largely ignored teenagers for so long. I mean, you go, go back to people like you know, Freud, it's all about all things that happen when you're a little kid, um, like linking to things that happen to you in your adult life. Whereas if you actually look at mental illness, uh, the thing that's really striking is how much of it starts uh, during uh, the teenage years. Uh, you can, it depends on the different types of mental illness, but many of them actually start uh, in the teenage years. And lots of people have wondered uh, why this is. Now, I mean, what other, I mean, there's, there's obviously there's anxiety, there's clinical depression, uh, and there's psychosis slash schizophrenia. I mean, they're sort of the, the big three that you think of. Um, and um, as a vet, the thing that strikes me is the fact that we just do not see these three conditions spontaneously arrive in, arise in animals. If people are absolutely horrible to animals, you can make them have something that looks very like one of these things, but they don't just spontaneously appear uh, in animals. So it's always made me wonder if it's sort, of, it's sort of the payoff for having this enormous, huge, complex brain is that sometimes it's kind of on the edge of kind of what's possible and sometimes things just you know, go awry because it's almost overcomplicated itself. Um, and of course, this would explain why these things start in the teenage years. You could argue that it's not until the teenage years that the brain is actually sufficiently complex to get all of these things wrong with it. It's not really human completely until you're a teenager. Uh, and so uh, you really cannot experience these diseases uh, until then. Um, there are other possibilities. One is that you know, your brain has all different bits in it, and quite a lot of the sort of emotional reactions that teenagers can have occur because it does appear that some bits of the brain mature before other bits. So sometimes teenagers go through a stage where they have very violent emotional reactions, and only then do they suddenly kind of haul themselves back and think, why did I do that? Um, that was a bit strange. And it is almost like one bit of their brain is leaping ahead of another bit of their brain. And you actually look at brain scans of teenagers, you can see these things, they're not all perfectly synchronously developing. Some things develop first, some things develop after. Uh, and that's uh, another uh, possible uh, thing, uh, reason for this. Uh, another thing, of course, is people suggested, well, obviously things happen quicker now, kids grow up quicker, uh, and things like that. And we'll talk about that in a second, and that indeed may be true as well. But there are many other theories for why 
one of the predominant features of human mental illness is that it very often starts off uh, in teenagers. Not always, but very often. Uh, the per percentages differ depending on exactly what condition uh, you're looking at. Indeed, the, the one condition that doesn't seem to start off uh, in um, uh, teenage life particularly is obsessive compulsive disorder. That stands out as being different from all the others in that it's not related to being a teenager uh, particularly uh, at all. That can happen at any time during childhood uh, as well. And then there's love. Uh, the other thing, of course, that happens during teenage years is very often the first time that you all fall in love. Uh, ooh, and it's the first time uh, that people have sex as well. And, of course, when you're a teenager, you start to learn those two things are not the same. It's like a Venn diagram. They may overlap, but they can be separate. Um, and you sort of think, hmm, that's interesting. Uh, and uh, this is when this learning process uh, really uh, starts. And this, uh, the thing that uh, often uh, parents and adults don't like is the thing that really they find a bit sort of unpowerful is the fact that clearly some point in human evolution we were in a bit of a rush and we did not wait until we were completely grown up and sort of mentally finished before we started reproducing. The two overlapped with each other. So we have people who appear to adults to be you know, unfinished, uh, immature, uh, and yet they're starting to engage uh, in uh, sexual activity. There's a lot, uh, but that is the way that we have evolved. There obviously was not enough time, even in our species, to wait long enough. The two phases of life have to overlap, and people just find that uh, rather uh, disquieting. Um, uh, but you actually talk to people in their 40s, and you say to them, what's your biggest regret about when you were a teenager? And the commonest response is, I didn't have enough sex. So it just shows you it depends uh, on uh, your uh, perspective. Um, the thing that has, of course, happened recently is puberty uh, is getting earlier and earlier. Puberty, we're, uh, we, we are a species in which the onset of puberty is largely dependent on diet and nutrition. Um, and so puberty is now much earlier now than it used to be. Uh, puberty, uh, it's over the last 100 years, it's got 12 days earlier every year which means in total it's about four years earlier uh, than it was 100 or 120 years ago. A very spectacular shift in such a short time. But that's how human biology is wired up. Puberty is controlled by nutrients and, and diet and things like that. And as a vet, I know there are some species that are like that. There's us and pigs, we're like that. And there's other species that use other things like the time of year or, or you know, all these other things. Uh, so that's just naturally. All of these things are kind of built in to our biology. One of the strangest things that's built into a bi our biology, of course, is teenage pregnancy. Now, uh, because there's this overlap between being a child and being sexually active, which people don't like to talk about, it does mean, of course, that girls can get pregnant while they themselves are still growing. And there's an increasing amount of work that shows that pregnancy uh, in teenage mothers is fundamentally different from that uh, in, in women who've stopped, who have themselves uh, stopped growing. Um, and, w I mean, there's lots of so social and political reasons why we're interested in this, because there's lots of evidence that shows that, you know, ch children of um, teenage mothers face various problems and things like that. Now, of course, much of that will be the fact that teenage mothers tend to be, uh, you know, they, they may not be employed, the financial side of things. There's, there's so loads of socioeconomic reasons why that might be the case. But there are biological differences between pregnancy uh, in young mothers and older mothers as well. 
in a, to, uh, just to break it really crude, in a way, I mean, in, in a woman who herself stops growing, the fetus basically takes all the nutrients it wants. Whereas before that stage, the mother and fetus to some extent compete. And there are actually very complex payoffs between uh, the age of the mother, diet at different stages of pregnancy, and how it affects the fetus's development. Uh, and these, these aren't abnormal things. You know, girls have been getting pregnant at 15, 16, 17 throughout human history. These things were meant to happen. This is an evolutionary payoff. If a girl is pregnant at that age, yes, she wants to have a healthy child, but equally she herself wants to have future reproductive chances as well. And all of this is built into all of our genes, and these are often things that people don't like to talk about. And indeed, uh, they can affect um, the child's health throughout their life. It can even affect you know, their chances of getting certain diseases in, their, in the child's 60s. So these things are built in, and it's sort of a, a sort of relic of this presumably quite difficult path that our species went through uh, that we don't uh, particularly uh, often find very easy uh, to talk about. Anyway, so there we go. I started off thinking that teenagers were just sort of this phase of life where you kind of do a few kid things and you do a few grown-up things at the same time, and there's this kind of overlap. And what I realized was actually, no, it's far more important than that. What it is, is actually we evolved teenagers so we could have this brain. And so what it turned out is, is instead of teenagers being this sort of drag on society, this sort of bane of our lives, always causing problems, the thing I realized was that actually it's teenagers that allowed us to become fully human uh, and teenagers that allowed us to become as successful and as clever uh, as uh, we are. And I liked that because I wanted to start off writing a positive story. And I thought, well, you can't have a story more positive than that. So anyway, thank you. Now, I've been told this has a microphone in it. And yeah, I can throw it at people as hard as I like. That's what he said. So if it turns out to be wrong, um, well, you can blame him. So what should we do? Should we ask the question? Yeah. Um, well, thank you very much, David, yeah. first. Um, apologies for the old people comment. Call it denial at my yeah. own advancing age. Yeah. Um, who has questions that they would like to uh, ask? Ah, brilliant. Way up at the back. Have we got our roving mics in yet? Or is that just going to be a really Unless we pass it on. interesting. <laughs> You'll look around in a minute. I won't be here anymore. Hey. <laughs> My question is, what aspect of diet... Sorry, what was that? What aspect of diet has brought puberty back? Uh, it's just sheer availability of calories and protein. Um, it's nothing particularly complicated. Uh, it's, it's that. And also, because as well as improving diet, it's reduced parasitism as well, um, which kind of comes with the same thing really, because parasites just extract some of your diet away from you. Uh, so, yes, it's nothing very specific, we don't believe. Does, um, does children's hearing get worse when they turn into a teenager? <laughs> um, th there's two answers to that. One is psychologically, yes. 
the other thing is, is even by teenage years, your ability to hear high-frequency sound is already deteriorating. Um, although it's still much better than adults. You may have heard of these things that you can get. Um, some people would put them up in like shopping centers when they didn't want teenagers hanging around, and they'd play this very high-pitched noise uh, that only teenagers can hear and adults can't. This is a really irritating noise. Um, and the thing that always made me realize how ingenious teenagers were is that what the teenagers would then do is they'd go to these places, set off these alarms, and record them as ringtones on their phone. So their phone could go off in class and their teacher won't be able to hear it. <laughs> Any more questions? What do you think made like teenagers start addressing different like social groups of different like tones and stuff? I mean, I think it's something that we all do. We all we all do very complex things when we're communicating. I'm, I'm not really a psychologist, but one of the things you do when you talk to somebody, teenagers and beyond, is, is you don't just talk to people. You think about how they're going to react to what you're going to say, but you do it so subconsciously you don't even think about it. So there are some people where you know you can be a bit rude to them and they'll just think it's funny. And there's other people you know might react badly. And you, and you talk to them in different ways. And I think that's really why teenagers are doing it. It's partly because they're learning that skill. But it's also because... Um, they want to create the social group. The social group is very important to these teenagers. Even if there's only two people or if it's ten people, um, that does seem to be um, very important to them. So I, I think that's probably why they do it. The most complicated form of communication, I think, in the known universe is actually teenage flirting. Uh, because when teenagers are flirting, they're sort of obviously talking to each other and one of them is saying something, they don't know if the other one really understands what they're saying. And they don't really know if they want the other one to understand what they're saying. And they don't know how the other one would react um, if they didn't understand what they were saying. And of course, the other person's doing exactly the same thing to them. And I think that, I mean, the layers of complexity, and, and it can be an incredibly, hilariously protracted process, uh, I think that's the most complicated form of communication of all. Once you get a bit older, you get a bit desperate, really, and you, you cut all that out. And <laughs> I, I, actually, I don't think it is just desperation. I think you just realize that the downside of being rejected is not as bad as you thought it was. So you just, you know, you go straight in there and see how you get on. <laughs> so, but te teenage, teenage flirting, far more subtle. Um, I'm a biology student, so I've been taught about two different strategies for reproduction that you can see in different kinds of species, the R and the K strategy, where there's one strategy where you try to have as many offspring as possible and you don't care for them at all and you just kind of throw them out into the world and most yeah. of them don't survive, which is what a lot of fish do. Yeah, I tried um, that, but it didn't work. They kept <laughs> yeah, <laughs> humans don't tend to do it to quite that extreme. And the other one is where you have a very few offspring and you take a lot of care of them. Um, and that can also be linked to taking a lot of care in mate selection. Mm -hmm. If you're only going to have a few offspring, you want to be careful that the other half of the genes are good genes. Um, and I wondered if the potential for humans to do either the very extreme parental care or the slightly less extreme parental care and more offspring could be linked to the potential for pregnancy and teenagerhood, but not necessarily always doing that. Yes, I mean, the, 
obviously mammals in general and humans in particular are over towards the end where you produce a few very valuable offspring. Um, and also, I mean, the thing, actually menopause is a real example of this because not only do you produce a few very valuable offspring, but actually after a while you stop producing offspring so you can look after the ones that you've already produced. Uh, the only thing that's slightly weird about people, of course, is our offspring take so long to grow up. So instead of having large litters, we will actually be caring for successive children at the same time within the same um, group. And that is quite unusual. You know, if you're a cat, you have a litter of kittens, you look after them, then they go. And then you have another little litter of kittens, and then they go. They don't overlap. So this overlap is, is it's kind of, a, even a sort of third strategy it's added on just because it takes so long for our offspring um, to grow up. But yes, there are, I mean, there are different strategies, I mean, and, and, it, and it's all kind of a payoff. Uh, there are things that go in the K direction, there are things that go in the R direction. But there's, n there's no sort of um, absolutes in this. Uh, and the other, th I mean, lots, uh, also, in a way, the choices which males make are more interesting because they don't have to invest in offspring, um, but they may get advantages from investing in them. And you get lots of weird things, like they're saying, nobody, no, I won't explain it now, but nobody ever believes me. The reason why uh, men find younger women attractive is because humans are essentially a uh, monogamous species. Um, and you may think, that doesn't make sense. But actually, when you have a species like ours, you can get these very weird uh, effects of things. Um, but of course, just because uh, a woman has her first child at 16, doesn't mean she isn't going to pair bond to the father for 30, 40, 50 years. How do you explain one form of teenage flirting is ignore each other? Um, <laughs> or even worse, be horrible to each other. Um, I, think it's, I, th I think it's partly a worry about rejection. Um, is that you, 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 when you haven't been through the process before, you worry that being rejected is this absolutely terrible, horrible thing. And then gradually you learn that it's not. Um, and, um, you know, there's sort of people say, you know, how do you get a beautiful girl to go out with you? The answer is you ask her. Um, <laughs> I mean, it sounds kind of obvious, but I think lots of it is this, it's worried, it's being worried about rejection. When you've never experienced rejection before, you're worried that it's going to be a lot worse than it actually is. Once you've been rejected a few times, you just sort of think, oh, well, it'll be that again. But the, the upside is so great uh, that you don't worry about the rejection so much anymore. Um, did you look at all at cultural differences in what we, what we conceptualize as a teenager? Yeah, th this is an interesting one, because lots of people say, oh, well, yeah, but teenagers, they were invented in the 1950s uh, or whatever. Uh, and uh, in a way, uh, th something that's weird has happened in Western culture is that since the 1950s, teenagers have been much more important in controlling what goes on in popular culture, which they hadn't been before. But if you actually look back and you look at how, say, well, you look back and say Western art, and you can see that teenagers were always thought of as, as a sort of a, a group of people apart. So, for example, you look at Romeo and Juliet. Um, and, you know, it's a tremendous tragedy, um, but they were, were they 14 and 13 or something? So a tremendous tragedy, young, foolish people doing it. And of course, if they'd been, uh, you know, 24 and 23, they would just have been stupid. Um, it wouldn't have been a tragedy. So everybody knew that teenagers, you go back to, you know, Homer and Virgil, and they were writing special subplots for, for teenagers who do these sort of, uh, sort of 
you know, impetuous, foolish things. Um, and so people have always known. And yet, the thing you do get is you also get around the world, you, is you get very sort of rites of passage, which humans, are, are sort of kids are supposed to go through, that somehow, uh, they're almost trying to say, no, there isn't, you go from childhood to adulthood, and that's it. Um, and you see this in many religions, is there's a certain thing that you go through where you stop being a child, you start being an adult. And I, I've always wondered why these belief systems try to sort of get rid of this idea of this perhaps rather unpalatable second decade of life. I always think it must be a bit strange if you're a member of that religion, you go through that process when, say, you're 13, and then you go to school the next day and you just think, hang on, <laughs> nothing's actually any different. Um, so there is, uh, I, I think they're, they're biologically they're a very real entity, Culturally, they're a very real entity, but of course, anything cultural, of course, is a bit malleable. Um, yeah, so I, I, I do think they're a discrete thing, even if some sort of social systems try and imply that they're, they're, they're not. Hi, my question is about um, teenage children that spend a lot of time navel-gazing. And uh, I'm interested in the whole idea of them becoming egocentric at that period. Why, why does that happen with teenagers? And not adults. I think, uh, I think adults do do it. It's just I think what happens when you're a teenager is you suddenly. I mean, why are humans so good at things? Is, is, is the reason humans are good at things, you know, we haven't got much going for us. We're quite small and weedy. We haven't got big fangs or claws. We can't run very fast. We're not very strong. But the thing we can do is we can do try things, and then if we fail at them, we sort of sit back and think, why didn't that work? know, why didn't I catch that lion or whatever it was? And what can I do next? And very few animals do this. I'd argue perhaps killer whales do do this, and maybe chimps as well. They attempt things, and then they think, now what did I do? So they, they, you analyze your, not, not just what you did, but you analyze your own thought processes. Think, why didn't that work? And I think self-analysis is one of the big things that humans have. They try things, fail at them, and they don't just repeatedly try and fail. They, 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 they don't just try and do them differently, they actually just stop for a while and they think about how they themselves thought. What is it that I'm doing that, didn't, that, that meant I didn't succeed? So I think thinking about yourself and the way you think and the way you approach things is one of the things that's made us very successful. And I think that's really what happens when you have, when you get to the teenage years. I mean, quite a lot of, one of the good things about teaching in this country is that we encourage uh, children, but especially teenagers, to be reflective. You teach them something, you get them to do it, and then you sort of say, well, how was that? Do you think that's going to be useful for anything? Did you like doing that? Um, and, and I notice that when I do university interviews here, for example, is UK and Western Europe, European students. You can ask something a bit weird, and they can have a go at it because they've kind of thought about why they think certain things about things. So even though their marks may not be very high, they sort of analyze things. And I think what happens is that this process is very important. You're, you're, you suddenly get the ability to do it. Not only you're analyzing how you achieve things, but you're analyzing your place in society, who you are, how you fit in with other people, you know, your sexual preferences, your sexual orientation, things like that. And there's just a lot to think about. And it may, I admit, to adults who've kind of got lots of that stuff sorted out, seem very self-absorbed and egotistical. Um, but, you know, the ego is quite important, and you do need to establish what it is. So I think that's really... Uh, why they do it. And it's one of these things, this whole thing isn't arranged to make parents' lives easier. So I think we've got time for one last one. I'll let you do choose one. Oh. Pick it. There's one right up in the back corner. So <laughs> get it all the way up there. Right up there. <laughs>
I want one of these at home. <laughs> Tell the kids, no, you cannot communicate um, with me until you've got the ball. When people are teenagers, they often have this big goals and noble idea. Why d how do you think why they grow out of this? Well, teenagers have all these big ideas and big goals. Well, I think, but actually a lot of what people do ends up being based on kind of naive and very bold ideas they have when they're teenagers. Lots of people's lives actually end up following paths that are decided um, you know, when they're in their teens. Um, people just have an idea and that's the one they follow for the rest of their life. I mean, there's sort of, I mean there, you see this particularly in geniuses. I mean, um, uh, it was uh, Einstein, was, uh, he was on holiday in northern France when he was a teenager and there's all this beautiful light everywhere. And he just thought, I wonder what it's like to sit on a light wave. I admit that's not the sort of thing that most teenagers would think of. <laughs> but he thought about it. And, of course, he didn't know enough maths to be able to do anything with it. But it ended up being his life story. And I think that is true of lots of people. Often people do find their direction in their teenage years, often for quite sort of um, naive reasons. The problem is later on in life, you often decide your direction based on negative things, like things you couldn't do or you didn't think you were very good at. But when you're a teenager, I think sometimes you're more likely to think, I really want to do that. And um, so I, I think it's an important part of life for myself. Brilliant. Thank you very much, David. Um, there were quite a few more questions. I'm sure David will be sticking around to answer some of them. Um, I expect we need to be out of the venue quite quickly, though, so if you would mind waiting in the foyer to ask your questions rather than coming down and doing them down here, that would be brilliant. Thank you very much.